why don't we talk about uh, for people that haven't um, don't know anything about Joe Sugarman and, and Blue Blockers and the things that you've done? Why don't you tell us just a little bit about who you are and, and some of the things that you've accomplished in uh, direct direct marketing and business? Well, uh, I, boy, it's, it's, I started out actually in the military. Actually, it started out in high school. I was a photographer, and I also had a column in a newspaper. And I got kind of bored with the newspaper, and I decided I'd start my own magazine. And I did, and I hired uh, staff and came out with the first issue, and everybody just loved it. And never came out with a second issue because I had to graduate. But um, that was my first venture into publishing. And then when I went to college, I, uh, things were kind of rough. I couldn't uh, pay for my, tui- or my tuition or my expenses. I was at the University of Miami and um, taking electrical engineering. And uh, so what I did was I'd write ads for local businesses, and I was so successful in doing that that uh, pretty soon I had a, like an ad agency. And I was instead of getting paid for it, I got like clothes or I got food or I got, in other words, in-kind type. Uh, gifts, and so I ended up with, um, I was the best dressed, best fed guy on campus, and I had a little <laughs> business there, so that, that, that worked out pretty nice, and, and then uh, I was, uh, I had three and a half years in, into my uh, electrical engineering degree, and I was getting very good grades, and then they put up the Berlin Wall in East Germany, and I had to, uh, the, the, the army uh, drafted me, and despite the fact, by the way, that I was in ROTC, I was going to be a, a second lieutenant in, a, in another uh, six months, but uh, according to their regulations, I didn't register, and therefore, <clears throat> I, uh, I had to go in, and uh, while I was in basic training, they gave the whole company of 2,000 men a test, and I was the only one that got 100 on it, and they pulled me out of the company, and they said, look, at you're eligible for... Um, being in the military intelligence, and I asked what that meant, and they said, well, you'd have to put in an extra year, but we'd uh, teach you a language, we'd send you overseas to some exotic location, we'd send you to a spy school where you'd learn how to be a spy and, and learn intelligence uh, operations, and it would be very interesting, and we really want you because you're really bright and you've got a good, uh, you know, you did so well on the test. So I decided to do that, and sure enough, um, they sent me to... Uh, Fort Holabird in, in Baltimore, which was a spy school, and I learned how to be uh, a military intelligence uh, operative. And then they sent me to Germany and to two different schools where they taught me how to speak fluent German with practically no accent whatsoever. I mean, I was uh, very fluent in German. And Kannst du Deutsch sprechen? Yeah, I can have Deutsch sprechen. Sprichst du Deutsch? Ambition, yeah. Ambition. You can ambition okay. okay. Well, anyway, I, I so I spoke German, and I also, incidentally, uh, later in life, uh, appeared on German television selling blue blocker sunglasses in German. So I did hmm. finally make use of that language besides uh, military intelligence. Anyway, that was a lot of fun, but probably one of the most interesting times of my life because. Uh, Although there was no war going on at the time, we were always in war with the enemy because we were always looking for intelligence information or recruiting uh, spies or debriefing spies. It was uh, it was very interesting, and it was at a time when the electronics uh, that the military used for eavesdropping were very small, but certainly no comparison to the way they are now. 
and I was involved in that as well. So my electrical engineering background played a role in that too. Well, I did that for about three years. I had a great time and then uh, met somebody, uh, some people who wanted me to sell ski lifts in the United States. And I uh, remembered I had a friend who was a civil engineer, and I called him up and I told him to come to uh, Europe uh, that I wanted him to meet these ski lift people who uh, wanted us wanted me to sell their ski lifts. And he came out and we worked out a deal with them, went back to uh, the U.S. and we formed a ski lift company. And I uh, did the advertising and marketing, and my partner did the sales and installation. And we um, we I started creating some really great novel mailing pieces and there was like maybe 500 resorts at the time and that was my mailing list but it was a very important mailing list and so I could spend a, l- a little bit of money on each mailing and I did and and I started getting this terrific response people were saying well look we love your advertising but we don't want to buy a ski lift so we just want to know who who does your advertising we'd like to talk to them and it turned out that uh, I ended up with about four or five advertising accounts as opposed to ski lift accounts. In other words, I was doing advertising for four or five of the ski resorts that liked our advertising but did, didn't event, did, did not buy our ski lift. So I did that for a while, and I really enjoyed it, and I gave my uh, interest in the ski lift company to my my partner, who continued the company and uh, did fairly well, I decided I'd just go into advertising. I really enjoyed that, and I wanted to get more accounts. And so I uh, uh, ended up doing uh, a number of projects, uh, one of which, uh, well, uh, I did a lot of uh, political candidates, um, uh, people who were running for office from the governor's race to the state's attorney's race. This was all in the Chicago area. And I did fairly well. 85% of my candidates won, which was a pretty pretty good track record. However, 50%... I've always wondered, I mean, we see that direct response plays a big role in, in the political campaigns. Would you say is that the best place to look at direct response? I mean, is that the most competitive arena, more so than financial stuff? Well, I think it's one of the arenas. I, I, there are times when, in, in, in political campaigns, you want to get name recognition and you want to get a few points across. <clears throat> you don't want it to be too complicated. And... Uh, and so my my role was getting the name across and, and the accomplishments and 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 very often putting some sort of response uh, vehicle in the message so that people then get involved and they respond and they support you. Uh, but it's not any different than any other form of advertising, other than the fact that you try to get across uh, a picture of the individual uh, and you try to get across their name and you try to get across so that people will recognize them and know who they are. As I was saying, 85% of my candidates won, but 50% of those 85% eventually went to jail. But that was that was Chicago politics. That wasn't my fault. Right. So anyway, so we did that for a while, and then uh, one day, and this is a very you know, fateful day, I was looking through Business Week, and I saw an article about a pocket calculator that had just been developed by a company called Bomar in Massachusetts using... Uh, uh, components from Texas Instruments in Texas and uh, being assembled in Indiana and it was just a conglomeration of different people playing a role in producing the first pocket calculator and this was I believe it was 1971 and I uh, read that article, cut it out and I said this would be a great product for one of my clients who was in the electronics business and I brought it over to them and they looked at it and they said who the hell would pay 
$240 for a thing that added, subtracted, multiplied, and divided. I don't think this product's worth anything. And uh, so I went back and I thought about it and I said, you know, I think this product's a good product. I'm going to go for it. I, so I contacted the manufacturer and I decided I would sell it myself. And I uh, didn't have the funds quite, uh, didn't have quite enough funds to really do a decent campaign. So I borrowed about $12,000 friends, relatives, people who knew me and supported me. and uh, so, I ended, so I ended up with $12,000, and I sent out a mailing list um, after, of course, contacting the company. And they were very interested in having me do the campaign because they were bombing at the, um, at the uh, retail level. They were not selling many, uh, many um, uh, pocket calculators because it just stood on a shelf for the same reason. Who would pay $240 for something like that? Well, anyway... I decided a direct mail campaign would be the way to go, so I, I came up with a direct mail uh, a letter and a flyer and an envelope and, and an order form and sent it out to about 50,000 prospects. Now, the mailing totally failed. I, I lost half the money, but uh, I tested 10 different mailing lists. Every order form had a different code on it. Every mailing list, I should say, had a different code on it on the order form. So I was able to determine that eight of the lists that we used were not successful. Two of them were, and they were very successful. And just as a, an aside, there were the two lists that I put in at the last minute that I thought had no chance. And so you never know. I mean, I, uh, I'll give you one example. I thought, well, a So in this case, you actually tested the lists. You weren't testing the copy. You were testing just the lists against your, your copy. Well, yeah, I had the, the one one message, and I had ten different lists to send that message to. Right. And um, but anyway, just as an example, uh, one list was to accountants. I thought, well, for sure, accountants could use a pocket calculator. And then the the one that I had thought had no chance was the chairman or chief executive officers of uh, five hundred million dollar a year companies or bigger. You know, and I thought. Or, or something like that. It was, it was somebody that I thought would probably never have the time, whose mail would be screened by their secretary, who would, wouldn't even respond to advertising mail. And I was kind of reluctant to send it out. Well, that turned out to be the best list. So I went back to my investors and I said, look, stay in. We're going to do a mailing just to this one list. And at the same time, the manufacturer, uh, at the time it was, oh, and I used the Craig Corporation name. They, that was the other thing I forgot to mention. They, they call themselves the Craig Calculator. So I, I, I talked to them, and they, they decided they were going to lower the price to $180. So here I had the best list at a lower price, sent out the mailing, and it did fabulously well. And then I did I took that um, that same copy, and I redesigned it for a print ad in the Wall Street Journal, back page of the Wall Street Journal. And I ran it in that, and that just buried me with orders. In fact, it was so heavy that Sears and all the other major department stores woke up to the fact that this might be a big product, and they wanted it. And so I was competing not with other men. I was competing for getting product as opposed to competing uh, with the selling process. But anyway... I did that. Um, we did very well with that calculator. We had another calculator. We had several calculators after that. Then we started getting into electronic products, digital watches, and we became uh, very successful in, in running these. Well, when you talk about like that with the calculators, for example, what kind of volume of calculators were you moving? Well, I would say in the thousands. Um, 
several thousand. And don't forget they were $180, so that, that amounted to a lot of money. And then eventually they stood, the prices started to drop. Well, in about 1973... And this is 30 years ago as well, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah, it was a long time ago. Uh, now, uh, something very interesting took place in 1973... Uh, whenever we'd run an ad, we'd have the ad in the news, in let's say the Wall Street Journal. We'd wait a week for all the response to come in. Then we'd decide uh, if we wanted to roll out in all the other magazines. And, and very often we'd just test one edition of the Wall Street Journal. And then if that worked, we'd go into all the other editions of the journal. So uh, it was always a time-consuming process. But I also noticed that many times I would get calls on the telephone from people who would say to me something like, we're in desperate need of a pocket calculator. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going on a trip. I don't have time to wait to send in the order form. Could you please send me one? I'll give you my credit card number. Just sign my name. Now, at that time, it was illegal. You had to have a signature on a credit card voucher. Well, I did that. I accepted the order over the telephone. And I did this for about a year. And I noticed that nobody ever ripped me off. Nobody ever ripped me off. So I said, well, you know, this might be a really good way to test uh, and see if um, I could, how, much, how much how well I could do. So I got a toll-free number, and I set it up in, my, in the basement of my home. I was still operating out of the basement of my home, by the way. And I set I set up the uh, toll-free number, and I sat back and I ran this ad in the Wall Street Journal Southwestern Edition, which is the smallest edition, and. Got to the uh, went to the basement in that morning, and from that morning on until late in the evening, we were getting phone call after phone call after phone call. We broke even before noon, and we had, of course, all of our answers to that product, uh, its success, and everything by by that evening. Uh, and that I, that was the start of the use of the toll-free number, and we did this for about a year before anybody else really figured it out. In other words, I had calls from some of my competitors, and they said, how are you doing? I bet you could really get ripped off. And I would say, well, you wouldn't believe how we get ripped off. I mean, I didn't want to lie to them. Um, but the point was we didn't get ripped off, and we did this for about a year, and finally everybody caught on. And it was about that time the catalogs took off, too, because now that with toll-free numbers, people could very easily order from catalogs. Fulfillment centers blossomed as a result. So that one little test that we did, uh, that one very successful test that we did, uh, eventually created not only an industry in direct marketing, but also uh, inspired the growth of, of catalogs, inspired the growth of many companies who heretofore uh, did not advertise and, and did not use toll-free numbers. So that was so probably breakthrough. Your, so your breakthrough there was um, allowing consumers to make orders without having a signed receipt. That's right. In other words, they just called a toll-free number, gave the order over the phone. Before that, no, that was not even allowed. That was, and then the funny part about it is, excuse me, uh, the funny part about it was that um, AT&T, I think it was the Bell Systems at the time, uh, used our company example as an example of a company using a toll-free number and succeeding. So we we had a lot of uh, a lot of recognition after that as as well. So that that Did you was get the, problems from the credit card companies. No, no trouble, no problems at all, not at all, not at all. It was uh, it was one of these things where they realized that there was a hell of a lot of potential in direct marketing, and that if done right, uh, you know that, that uh, they were they were going to benefit as well. So they never never talked to us at all. 
Now, so one you of the took th- all the risk by doing it, by actually taking the orders. The risk was on you if, if customers went and complained, but because they didn't, it was okay. Oh, yeah, and customers, of course, didn't complain. Uh, and, you know, eventually you did have a few bad credit cards and you had some, a little bit of fraud, but it was very minor. It was very minor, but that for one year that we took these orders over the phone, and who knows how many I took, maybe it was a 100, maybe it was a couple hundred. But during that one year, we never got ripped off. And so uh, it, it turned out to be a very a very successful, very uh, very good opportunity to uh, expand our business, and that really expanded our business as well. And we really took off. And uh, because now we were running ads not just in the Wall Street Journal, but we were running ads in every magazine we can get our hands on. And, and uh and, and we did very well, uh, did exceptionally well. Uh, and then, um, and then one day I was driving down the 405 Expressway in Los Angeles, and uh, it was a real bright day. And the friend that was taking me to see a new electronic product handed me a pair of sunglasses, and he said, "I see you're squinting. Try these." And I put them on, and I looked through them, and I said, "Wow, this is really interesting. Everything seems so sharp and clear." and Yet everything is so bright. What is this? And uh, my friend explained to me that these were the sunglasses that the astronauts wore, and that it was it was from a friend of his who made them for the for NASA. And uh, um, but the, the guy was going bankrupt, and and these were too expensive, and you don't want to sell these, and you know, all the reasons why not to sell them. But boy, it sure seemed to me like a great product. Anyway, make a long story short, when I got back to Chicago. My home base, uh, I was doing a catalog for United Airlines, eight pages, and one of the products we <coughs> had in that <coughs> catalog dropped out, and so I had to fill it with something. So I called my friend, I said, oh, excuse me, I said, please, please, but uh, send me that, that, that product that you had that blocked all the blue light and, the, you know, that I, that the astronaut, and he, he says, but yeah, but you're not going to be able to get them from the manufacturer. I says, well, I'll get them from the Far East. I'll get them somewhere. I just need a, a product. So he sent me the product, wrote an ad in a couple hours, put it in that catalog, and then arranged to get product shipped from uh, from the Far East so that we would have inventory. And uh, the results came in after the first couple of weeks, and I looked at the results, and I couldn't believe it. The the sunglasses uh, outpulled all the other products completely. In other words, uh, whatever we sold on the other products, uh, we sold much more of of the pair of sunglasses. Well, I, I saw this as a great opportunity for branding, and I called them Blue Blocker, and I had the capability of rolling out nationally in all the magazines because we were doing that anyway, and I said, well, I'm going to create my own brand. And so I uh, did that. I advertised everywhere. I spent a million dollars. Uh, on print advertising over about a seven month period and I sold in that seven, in, in, during the, those seven months, I sold a hundred thousand pair. Now remember, it took me seven months, a hundred thousand pair. About the same time at the end of that campaign, uh, the, they had announced that they now allowed, uh, half hour commercials, uh, half hour infomercials. And I said, oh, this would be a great opportunity to sell a pair of my pair of sunglasses. And everybody thought I was nuts because how, how do you need a half hour to sell a pair of sunglasses? But I did it and uh, produced the first show, and this was 1986. And I produced the first show, and it ran. And in one month, we sold 100,000 pair. Remember I said it took us seven months? Well, in one month, I sold 100,000 pair. 
And I ran several infomercials. Uh, I ran a total of 13 infomercials for a variety of products, but four of them were for blue blocker sunglasses, uh, and that was over a six-year period. And at the end of that six-year period, we were shipping about 300,000 pair a month in just one month, and uh, we did that for several months. So we had a very successful program, and then we uh, took the product to uh, Walgreens drugstores here in the U.S., and they had, uh, oh, maybe 3,000 stores at the time, and they, they were burned by somebody who had presented a knockoff of our blue blockers to them, and they saw, and they bought 30,000 pair of them, and they were stuck with them. And they were really uh, very cautious about taking on our product, but they did. And uh, within, uh, I'd say, a day and a half it took, and they were sold out. They were absolutely blown away. We had a ship by FedExpress. We had a ship all over the country to their warehouses so that they can keep up with the demand. And then uh, something similar happened with QVC. We went on QVC. They gave us five Actually, just before times. we go... Before we go on to QVC, um, what, there's a book uh, called About the Thighmaster by the guy who, who, who brought out the Thighmaster and talked about how he branded it on TV and, and then that helped him get, um, that, that enabled other channels like retail where he was able to sell and drive a lot more volume. Is that, is that, that's the basic strategy you follow and did, did that drive a lot more volume for you? Is that, did that open those channels that wouldn't have worked otherwise? Well, there's some products that would work very well that way because what you're doing is you're sta- on, on an, in an infomercial, you're establishing a brand. Now, I don't think you have the same uh, power uh, when you're on QVC. QVC is like a separate. Um, it's like a separate media. It's 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 not. It's you, you, usually there's not as much crossover. But if a product appears nationally on um, it appears nationally on, let's say, an infomercial or a spot commercial, uh, then you have this mass awareness of this product, and that's when QVC is interested in your product because there's already the awareness. There's always the, uh, the knowledge that people already are familiar with your product, and so QVC then uh, likes to respond to products like that. Uh, obviously, they'll take products that has no, have no exposure as well. But if you do have a lot of exposure and your your product is well recognized, they want it because they know they could sell it to their their clients. You, you wouldn't have got into Walgreens, would you, without the branding equity that you built up? Oh, not not, a, not at all, not at all, not at all. Uh, of course, we also created a lot of competition. We created people that tried to knock us off. We there were, there were cars pulled over to the side of the road with with signs that say blue blocker sunglasses $5 and people were selling sunglasses out of their trunk knockoffs of ours nowhere near the quality or the the uh, safety of ours but uh, they were doing it and, and and they were doing it quite well and in the beginning I was really annoyed because there were so many of those cars and, and knockoffs at county fairs and all this uh, that it's just impossible to stop and yet the positive part about it was it, it solidified the brand name. People knew of Blue Blocker sunglasses. I mean, it became a very popular brand. So all of that helped you know, get on QVC. Of course, it helped on, on Walgreens. And both Walgreens and QVC and any retail chain appreciate the exposure because that drives sales. And uh, we certainly did it with Blue Blocker. And so that worked out really well. Um, so anyway, that, that's the background of Blue Blocker. Um, 
you know, we, we're, we're still at retail. It's been 15 years, actually 21 years since we started. Uh, we're still uh, with Walgreens. We're still with QVC. And for QVC, that's a real unusual feat to be on with a single product, a single brand, for 15 years. I, I don't know of any other product. but There might be a few, but very few that can claim that. And the company's been in business 21 years, and we've been helping people. Uh, one of the things I'm proud of is the fact that before we uh, hit the sunglass scene, there were um, people weren't aware of the fact that uh, uh, ultraviolet light was bad for your eyes or that blue light caused a form of blindness or any of these things. And because of our national advertising campaign, we educated the public, and as a consequence, a lot of people then looked for this protection and protected their eyes. So who knows how many people, how many, how much, how many eyesights, how many people's eyesight uh, sites that we protected and 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 and, uh, to, and and probably to this day they're they're able to see properly without having to be blind blinded by some of these rays. But it also changed the whole industry because now the industry had to compete with us, so they had to block all the ultraviolet rays. And so the benefit to the consumer was that, that we were educating them and we were providing a product that truly protected their eyesight. So that's probably one of the another thing that I'm very proud of is the fact that we really served our community, served the public, and came up with a product that really that not only worked but that that helped them a great deal. And I, I believe that you do not you're not rewarded financially or through successfully unless you really do provide value to the consumer. And the value, of course, that I I provided was what I just mentioned. So anyway, that's. Um, well, to build yeah, on to that question then, when you're talking about providing value, um, one of the things that most direct marketers are always looking for is a back end. Um, what kind of follow-on sale, like when you're doing your 300,000 sales a month of, of sunglasses, did you have any back end follow-up products? Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, infomercials today, uh, I think, depend on the back end. Uh, back then, we were doing so well at the front end that the back end wasn't as significant, but we still had a back end. We had... We had the lens cleaning kits. We had child children's sunglasses. We had you buy one, you get one free. We we had you you know different offers that we'd constantly tweak, and and uh, that added a, a very nice component to our uh, profitability. Hmm. You, and what, you don't, uh, what products fact, work the best? Yeah, in fact, it, it's it's you you must. I, I can't even believe that people uh, everybody then really realizes if you're in te- on television or any kind of uh, marketing and you take orders on the telephone you have to have a back end uh, or you're missing a lot of business right and which uh, back end work best for you the, the lens cleaning uh, well i think two for the price of one was the most effective um uh, I think the, i think it was either the lens cleaning it was close it was a lens clean kit or the children's sunglasses uh, one of those two, one of those two, and it, it was a simple offer. We had either a pair of uh, aviator sunglasses or a pair of clip-ons for people who had prescription. So we covered the entire market, which is another thing about television is that you you have to have a product that that uh, uh, that reaches the masses. In other words, it has to appeal to the masses. You can't have a product that, let's say, for tennis players or for right. Yeah, it's just it's too narrow a category. You you have to have a product that appeals to a mass market. I know there's been golf products, you know, for people who like to play golf. 
I know there's been uh, tennis products, but usually they're not that successful and they don't they, they, they don't last very long. The ones that last long have a very, very broad market. For example, uh, Guthy Ranker's uh, uh, acne pr- uh, product. Proactive. Yeah, Proactive. I mean, that thing is, it's, and what's great about it is it's a continuity product. Now, right. one of the things that uh, Guthy Ranker does, and they only do, is, is continuity. Uh, in other words, right. if you buy one, and then automatically every month they ship you another one. And I've I've dabbled in that, and that has been extremely successful for me. We sold vitamins for about two years and then stopped uh, going on TV but filled all the orders. And for the next 10 years, those vitamins would just keep selling. The profit made from the continuity paid our overhead, and we had a couple products like that. So continuity is where it's all at. If you can come up with a product that you can automatically ship every month, you have got a, a very potentially successful concept. So two two more questions then around um, the, the blue blockers and just in, in your general experience. When you get people calling in um, to order, what kind of uh, upsells would you have for them? And then how did you make sure that the sales stick and didn't, didn't refund? Because I imagine you did a lot of testing in both of those. As far as upsells? Upsells and then, yeah, making sure the sales sticks. Well, well, first of all, every time we run a television commercial, it was a test. By that I mean, by that I mean, if, for example, uh, we'd go on one television station in one city and we'd monitor the results. If the results were good, we'd continue. If the results started to fade, we'd start monitoring it very closely. And so uh, the television commercial itself, putting aside the, the back end and all those other things, was something that was constantly being checked and tested. The biggest mistake that these many direct marketers make who went on television is they didn't monitor all the results. And so they may have been running on stations that weren't producing any profit at all, and eventually that caught up with them. And they, many of them made millions and lost millions and went bankrupt. So what we did is we monitored every every commercial that ran on every station in every market. And we knew when something was starting to fade or when there was a problem or when, when a commercial never even ran. Sometimes a commercial wouldn't run and we wouldn't get any sales and we knew something was wrong. But we'd monitor that. Now, we'd also monitor and test different back-end uh, items, you know, upsells. Uh, and we'd, we'd uh, test different ways to present the upsell. In other words, there's sometimes where you just use a few key words and it triggers the sale, whereas if you used another few words, it, you just wouldn't get the response. Now, I don't recall exactly uh, the test results and what words we used and all those kind of things. That, uh, but I do recall that uh, we did test all of that and uh, different products from the children's sunglasses to buy one, get one free to to uh, to the lens cleaning kit, uh, to uh, per different prices on different things so that we could determine which price point that drew the biggest response. And if I had to leave any important lesson with anybody, it is that uh, testing should be an integral part of everything that you do forever. And I'll tell you, I have made a, a mistake, uh, too, that cost me millions of dollars because I didn't test. And what it was, uh, was that after, when, when I ran that first toll-free number, I had a coupon, dotted lines, name, address, and all this stuff. And then very small type above the coupon, it said, credit card buyers call toll-free to order. And that was the, 
that was the little line that drew this tremendous response. Well, after a while, I noticed that 95% of my orders came in a toll-free number. And I said to myself, why do I even need a coupon? If people wanted to order it, they can just fill out their name and address on a piece of paper and send it in. It's the same thing. So I eliminated the coupon, and I just put in the toll-free number. And I put it in large, of course, so people could see it really easily. And I thought this was the way to go. Well, anyway, I read a book. It was from Dayton Bird, I believe. He's a gentleman out of England about direct marketing. And in his book, he said, you should always have a coupon. You should always have the dotted lines. And I said, I said that's, that's, that's ridiculous. I said, but you know, I've never tested that. So I had the opportunity because we were doing another catalog for one of the airlines. And I, um, I put in uh, uh, the dotted lines. I had the regular coupon. Then I had it the way we normally run it, with just a toll-free number. And I ran a test, and it was like every other copy had a different look. You know, in other words, uh, half the half the copies had the, with the coupon, and half of them had did not. And actually, I had a few other things I tested in that as well. But anyway, the bottom line was that the coupon outpulled the way I had been doing it. By, by 20 to 30 percent. In other words, I had been leaving millions of dollars on the table because I never tested that one aspect. And so from then on, of course, I always used the coupon. Uh, so know, even though they were calling in for, on a, for a toll-free number, they still responded better just because it was in a coupon box? Well, yeah. I think what it did is it sent the message that this this product could be bought off the page. In other words, you can buy this product uh, uh, via mail order, whereas before, even though it had the toll-free number, it, it didn't say you can buy this off the page. It basically may, it might have just looked like uh, some sort of advertisement. I, I don't know. I, I absolutely don't know. I do know this, that uh, direct marketing is very counterintuitive, and the things that you think should work very often don't work, and the things that you think shouldn't work sometimes do work. So that's why testing is critical. Now, uh, anyway, the, the Blue Blocker's been going on. As we, we celebrated our 21st year last year. Um, well, I even saw the, you on The Simpsons. Say again? I even saw you on The Simpsons. That's what I was very impressed by. Oh, yeah. Somebody, somebody said that The Simpsons even had talked about it. Oh, you haven't blocking. seen it? No, but I heard about it. Uh, there's enough people. I, I mean, I was, I was watching The Simpsons, and then suddenly along came Joe Sugarman telling, selling Blue Blockers. I was I was a little bit stunned. <laughs> <laughs> that, that isn't that funny. I, I heard about that, but I had not personally seen it. Um, but anyway, that is funny. Um, anyway, um, have you made the, it into any other kinds of um, you know, what, what other kinds of sort of um, offbeat stuff has happened since since you um, made the blue blockers like that? Oh, we've uh, for example, there's something about Mary the movie. Uh, we were in there. Matt uh, Dillon used our blue blockers throughout the entire movie. He was the villain in the movie, or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, we we had um, he used that a lot. A lot of times, I go to the movies. Uh, this this happened a couple times where I would go to the movies, did not know they were going to be wearing blue blockers, and in the movies they were wearing blue blockers. So, so yeah, that um, hmm. the we had a couple examples like that. I've appeared on a number of TV shows. Uh, Blue blockers have been mentioned on, on um, uh, you know, the Tonight shows and uh, just all sorts of uh, all sorts of places. So anyway, that's um, 
I have, was... I have two big topics I want to cover before we run out of time. We've got about 20 minutes left. Did you have something else you wanted to talk about before we go into these? Uh, just the fact, if you want the, the, the full scope of my career, is after Blue Blockers, uh, uh, she was, uh, went into, uh, I'm, right now, for example, I'm into longevity and life extension. And I firmly believe that within the next 10 years, the technology that not only we are working on, but other people are working on, will allow us to live to 120 years of age and healthy. Not, not, you know, that we'll figure out a way to get rid of a lot of these illnesses. So, uh, anyway, that, that just, just as an aside comment. But go ahead, why don't you ask your questions and I'll be happy to answer. Okay, these are two, two fairly big topics, I think. Um, one is that a lot of, a lot of the guys are running internet businesses where they've got some products that are working well online. Um, and they've, they've got the online distribution worked out pretty well with affiliate marketing and email and all that sort of stuff. And they'd like to get some more in the break into different channels. And so one of those channels uh, obviously would be interesting would be TV. And whether that's uh, infomercials or QVC or whatever, um, let's say you've, you've got your successful product and it's working online, how do you take that to another medium like TV? Well, uh, if you've got... Where do they start? <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, here, here's my, uh, here's my uh, approach to everything I do, actually. Um, what I do is I always test in print uh, to get across all the concepts. Now, testing uh, on the Internet is, is, is pretty well tantamount to testing in print. I mean, you're, you are, in a sense, testing, um, and it is a good uh, way to test. Um, wait uh, one second. Yeah, so it's a good way to test. But uh, what I would do is, if you have a very hot product and you, you've you've tested it in, on the internet and it is very hot and it's doing exceptionally well and you're making a lot of money and there's a lot of profit in it, to me, that is a great indicator that you're going to do well on TV. If it's an expensive item over forty dollars, I certainly would do it uh, via an infomercial. If it's less than forty particularly in the, in the $20 range. I'd certainly do it as a spot commercial. Um, the problem with TV is it's a hell of a lot more expensive than coming up with something on, your, on the Internet. On the Internet, you can come up with a background. Uh, you can come up with uh, uh, an environment that looks like you're a million-dollar corporation, and it really levels the playing field, and it's not very expensive. But when you go on TV, you've got production values. You've got... You've got uh, editing. You've got all sorts of uh, things you've got to do, and, and sometimes this stuff can <clears throat> run up to a couple of hundred thousand dollars before you know if the thing will work. So, but if you've tested it <clears throat> and you've been on the internet, you should pretty well know if you've got a winner and if it will work. And I certainly would uh, try TV because it's through TV. Again, it's 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 multimedia. You you can you can be on the internet, but you'll miss a lot of people on TV. Now, you can be on the TV, but you'll miss a lot of people maybe on the internet. Uh, it's it's a it's a balance. Um, so anyway, so how do you huh? how do you try how do you try TV? Where do you where do you start? Well, uh, there are a lot of companies who um, well, first of all, you, you produce your spot. Uh, and there are a number of companies that actually produce these uh, TV spots and, and also the uh, infomercials. That's their specialty. They produce them for other people. They're ad agencies that do this. Uh, then once you produce it, then to test it, uh, they give you the guidance. Uh, you, you basically go um, 
to uh, the, the media buying agencies who specialize in buying infomercial time. And a lot of times they'll buy in bulk and then resell. And so you go to those people and, and you just test. You go into, they'll tell you, uh, for example, that uh, you should spend about $20,000 testing uh, to really get some good numbers to determine whether or not you, you've got a, a saleable product or a, a good infomercial. And so you test with 20000 And if it's um, successful, you don't go out and spend a million dollars. You you take it to the next level. You go, instead of spending twenty, you spend maybe a 100 if you feel pretty confident. And the reason for that is you never bet the farm. Too many people, and there's, there's really, really good advice, too many people have gotten a success, such a success with $20,000 uh, do, uh, that they that they blow caution to the wind and they spend a million, and then what happens, uh, maybe a 9-11 takes place or a, or some dramatic uh, uh, event, or and then they lose everything. Uh, so uh, it's always best to ramp up, and it's always best to play with the money that you've already earned as opposed to the money that you're using to possibly pay the mortgage in your house. So anyway, uh, those are some of the tips. Is there any other? Are there any other questions? So just for, for getting started, let's say if you're you're already taking, you're doing most of your ordering online, you're getting maybe five to ten percent of orders coming in through a phone center. You could have a, an outside company create uh, one or two infomercials for you, thirty second spots or, or longer spots to run as infomercials, and you could direct those calls into your existing call centers uh, to handle the volume as a, as a small test. So, and in fact, getting started on TV, doing it that way, building into your in- existing infrastructure is probably not going to be a high additional cost. I mean, 30, $30 or $40,000. Is, is that sound correct or, or am I missing something? Yeah, that's close. I mean, that, that's about right. Hmm. Okay. Um, what, ab- what then about... Oh, sorry, is that... You no, go ahead. Something? What then about um, if someone wants to get on uh, QVC? QVC, um, QVC. First of all, it's a great medium. Uh, as I said, we've been on QVC for 15 years. We've, uh, we've. Just, it's just, uh, it's just a great media. Uh, now how do you get on QVC? Well, if you've got a product that is again nationally advertised and is a big success, you're way ahead of the game. All you have to do is go to QVC and present. Uh, basically, the fact that you are uh, you have been successful and, and how successful you have been, and they'll recognize the value of what you've got. But they have uh, uh, they have what you the way to do go about this though. Typically, without any connection at QVC, is you go there and they have a vendor uh, request form, or, or I forget what they call it, where they they'll take uh, submissions from uh, new companies that aren't currently on QVC. Uh, it's called vendor relations. You, you call up QVC. You ask for vendor relations. They're located in in, in Pennsylvania, um, uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania, and you get a hold of QVC's number and it's, you ask for vendor relations. And then you give them your name, address, and all the information, and they'll send you a kit. And the kit will ask you a lot of questions, many of which uh, involve uh, the media that you've been on, uh, the exposure that you've had. Um, what the product does, how it, you don't send the product with the uh, presentation, but you make a very nice presentation. And then uh, they look it over and they decide whether or not that product makes sense for QVC. Now, there's some products that are ideal for QVC. I know, for example, cosmetics is a great product uh, for QVC because most of the viewers are women. Um, 
uh, and and uh, I, I know that the children's sunglasses, for example, aren't very popular. It's, it's a very difficult sell. So these are the things that they know after many, many years of, of, of having products tested and, and on air. And uh, they sell billions of dollars worth of merchandise a year. You, you have when you go on, you have to to be successful. You have to sell at least, I would think, eight nine thousand dollars a minute uh, in in, uh, in retail value of your product in order for it to be considered successful. So um, anyway, you send in the vendor relations thing. They then arrange a, for you to come in and present your product. They then, uh, you, you then have to have either a spokesperson go on the air or you take a small course. They put you through a course where they train you how to be a spokesperson on QVC. In other words, the person that presents the product. They have a host who guides you, but typically you have to go to the school that teaches you how to, 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 to present on TV. And, uh, and then you go from there. If you have a hit, uh, then they cautiously ramp up. Uh, they'll order uh, X amount. Uh, if if it looks like you have a incredibly good product, they might do what is called a, T- a TSV, which is a today's special value, and that's where they'll bring in. Uh, you'll go on the air several times during the day presenting your product, and you often move uh, uh, millions of dollars in in, in, pro- in, in product. Typically, uh, you might move $10 million uh, of a single item. Uh, I know one time we moved uh, 250,000 pair of sunglasses in one day on QVC. So, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's it's a powerful medium. It uh, it's, if if you have a product that's suited for them, uh, you're 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 going to do exceptionally well. How how are they in terms of negotiating on profit margins and that kind of stuff? Obviously, it's still worth a while, but I meant. Yeah, I think they're very reasonable. They, um, they're, a lot of products are generally around, it depends which category, of course, because some products have tremendous margins and other products uh, do not, and they, they recognize that. I know the electronics area, the, the margins that they expect are, are not anywhere near as great as the jewelry or the cosmetics. And uh, and they work with you. It's it's they're usually pretty good. The, the the negative, if I can bring up a few negatives, is one is if you don't sell the product that you're presenting on QVC, you get it all back. And uh, and, and before you can sell the product on QVC, you have to package it. You have to put their their barcode on it. You have to do a whole number of things that to prepare that product for. Shipping and of course, if you don't sell enough, you get all that product back as well. So there's a risk, uh, and it's like uh, I mentioned before: you don't bet the farm uh, once you think you've got a big success. You try to ramp up uh, carefully and slowly, unless, of course, they're giving you a today special value, and then it's it's up to you to determine whether or not the risk is worth the reward. Hmm. All right. Um, would it be correct to say that you do more QVC than infomercials today? Oh yeah, uh, we. Uh, I actually stopped doing infomercials, uh, although I'm, I'm tempted to get back into that uh, as well. But we do primarily QVC uh, for our television. Occasionally, we've run spots. <clears throat> we've run spot commercials for certain products to test them, and, and but primarily it's QVC. It's it's our Walgreens, our drug chain that we have here in the U.S. Uh, that is in practically every city and. 
we've more or less created a franchise for both QVC and Walgreens so that if you want to buy it at retail, <clears throat> you want to buy our product at retail, you simply go to the, um, you go to, uh, uh, Walgreens and if you, uh, are watching television on QVC, you, you, you know that the, the latest styles for women are, are available on QVC. QVC primarily now sells style. <coughs> Excuse me. They, they sell style, whereas um, Walgreens sells more style, but also practicality, uh, practical products that fit both men and women, or look good on both men and women. Is there a reason why you stopped doing TV? Uh, not, not really. Uh, it, the, the, I guess the main reason is we were uh, at retail with Blue Blocker and. Um, I had done the TV thing for several years, and I was just, you know, I, I just got tired of it. I just been there, done that, and being in Walgreens and being on QVC were self-perpetuating, and didn't require my efforts. And I was on to maybe some other, other concepts and other ventures, and and uh, and just went from there. And also, the fact that TV is constantly changes, and if I was to get back in, I'd have to probably go through a little learning curve again myself. But um, and I might go, I might do that. I'm, I'm getting kind of uh, antsy because we have some exceptionally incredible products through this new uh, anti-aging company that I'm associated with. That I, I feel it might be time to go back on. Hmm. All right. Um, okay. So then. Um Next um, topic I'm really interested to understand your thoughts on is you've, you've obviously seen television evolve since the beginning of infomercials to where it is today. How does a media like that evolve in terms of costs and competition? I mean, in the Internet, we're in very early days. And what's, it, what's a good thing for people on the Internet who are building businesses now to know so that they can do make, ensure their businesses are still around in 10 and 20 years like yours has been? Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, when you're... On television, infomercials or spot commercials, it is not uh, the margins that you're making from the sale of your product, although, of course, that's important. What is key is how you buy the media, how effectively you buy it. For example, uh, let's say we were on CBS in New York. It was a $100,000 typical spot commercial, but something fell through and they needed somebody to fill it in and they were willing to offer to us for $20,000. And we saved $80,000 and our profits uh, had we spent or paid 100,000 for that spot, we probably would have lost money, but as it was, we we did make very nice return. So it's how you buy the media. You have to negotiate TV media, radio media, it's all negotiable. And uh if you're dealing with uh, media buyers who typically buy spots, and they, by the way, they specialize. There are media buyers that buy uh, spots, and there's media buyers who buy uh, infomercial uh, time. And if you deal with them, generally speaking, they're, they want you to succeed, and they'll want you to buy. Uh, they'll want you to buy their, the media that they can offer you and at a reasonable price. Uh, and they'll do the best they can to, to, to assist you so that you make money. I mean, you're all in it to, to, to win, and it's a win-win when everybody can make money on, on, on a commercial. So it's, it's how you buy the time that's critical. Nothing, everything else is secondary. Right, okay. Um, have you noticed how the market's changed? I mean, is, is media more or less expensive today than it used to be? I know one of the things that obviously now you obviously have to have 
uh, a, back, a good back end in place and, and preferably a continuity program like Guthy Renka looks for. Um, any other comments on, on that? Uh, now, on the fact that, uh, uh, repeat that again, the, 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 you, you, there's a very good point that I wanted to bring out. You just said can, can, can we expect that media prices are going to increase? Oh, okay, yeah. The good, good, good. For media today? Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to say. The, one of the reasons I got out of the game was that I knew that media prices were going to start to rise. This was back in 92. I just knew that the, they were rise, they were starting to rise. And when they rise, uh, it's, it's very difficult to get deals. Then your profit margins really shrink. And so I felt this would be a good time to get out. Um, However, uh, when is the best time to buy media? It's, it's when the economy is down, uh, when everything is rolling and everybody is trying to advertise and there's a lot of competition for time. Again, because it's negotiable, uh, you're not going to get the best deal. So uh, what you look for is during a recession, during when times are tough, then you can really negotiate. Now, right now, uh, I would say it's not a bad time to negotiate now. I think that we're feeling the effects of some change that's going to take place in the media, excuse me, in the economy, and I think people are becoming uh, a little cautious. About I don't know, though. It's difficult to predict, and that's the other thing. Sometimes uh, I've been in situations where uh, I thought uh, the, the economy was going to go up or down, and or let's say I, I thought we were, it was going to go down, and uh, it went up, and I thought it was going to go up, and it went down. You, you can't really judge by that, except... In general, the trend, if the trend is towards a very poor economy, you know you can start negotiating and getting pretty good prices. Right. Okay. So the last uh, topic I wanted to ask you about, um, which is maybe not your favorite, but I think it's an important one to talk about, is uh, your experiences um, with the U.S. government and particularly the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah, we had a, uh, a little adventure with those guys. Um, uh, <laughs> That's well, how you now call it? Well... <laughs> It was it was over six years. What happened? Uh, we had uh, I was operating out of Chicago. We had a beautiful office building, and and um, everything was going really great for us. We were top of the heap. Everybody had a lot of respect for us because we were a really upstanding company, and really with great pride took care of our customers. And uh, and then one day, um, uh, we had a uh, three major sto- snowstorms, one right after another. And it buried us, and our employees couldn't get to work. And about the same time, they had passed a regulation that you had to ship within 30 days or notify your customers. And uh, we couldn't because our computer broke down as a result, as partially as a result of the storms, and we couldn't get people to fix it. And then finally, after two weeks of, of what was like hell, we finally got everything fixed. We finally notified all of our customers, gave them all gifts, if I recall, and um, apologized and, and went on. Well, the FTC found out about it, and they came over and they said, uh, "Look at um, uh, you! Uh, you have violated our 30-day rule." And uh, I looked it over and I said, "Well, we had these circumstances these, uh, that uh, we didn't expect, and, and we tried to negotiate with them. They wouldn't negotiate." And we, I had such a good reputation that I, I thought to myself, I just couldn't let the FTC smear us like this. I'm going to fight them. I want to explain exactly what happened and what they're trying to do. And 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 I did. I conducted a major national ad campaign. I um, had a newsletter. So you took on I, the U.S. government. I took on the U.S. government, and 
I had a tremendous following. The Libertarian Party wanted to run me as their presidential candidate, which I, I refused to do. Um, uh, I, I was uh, I was giving speeches all over the country. I was giving uh, uh, talking about uh, what the government, what they do, and how they go about doing it. And I determined, from my experience, that they lied, they cheated, they uh, cannot, they did everything in their power to to uh, uh, screw you if they wanted to go after you and they used means that even to this day are uh, illegal um, and I demanded uh, through my ad campaign that we have an oversight hearing in Congress which we did and there were uh, I remember several television cameras and I was there and it was one of these things you see on C-SPAN where I got up and I testified and then I got questioned uh, by some of the uh, Staff and what had happened is they they literally laid a trap for me. They um, like uh, Al Gore got up with twelve. He was holding twelve complaints. He says, "Mr. Sugarman, I understand you are very good at advertising and marketing, but I've got twelve complaints here that say you do not deliver product on time." Now, twelve out of millions, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. But he did get up there and say it. Uh, but I took the first part, by the way, where he said, you're, you're very good at advertising and marketing, and I use that as a quote and as an endorsement in my book. But the I, rest I noticed of that I, on the back of your books. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I, anyway, to make a long story short, they really, uh, they really uh, uh, let me have it. And the final outcome, although it was very subtle at the very end when all the reporters had left, they admitted that there were some uh, mistakes and that they'd correct them and they wouldn't do them again and, and all that kind of stuff. And then later after that, I, I testified in Congress to help small businessmen. If, if for example, the government went after them, uh, then in, and if the government lost, that the government would reimburse the small business person for his legal expenses. So to avoid the harassment that I got and, and so forth. So anyway, that was an experience that lasted six years. I, I practically lost my business when I... I, I never took contributions, although people sent sent me a lot of money. I sent it all back. I tried to do this all on my own. Eventually, near the end, I had to use some of that money, but I, I eventually repaid everybody. And um, and I almost lost my business. It uh, it uh, just, uh, sales went down. Uh, people, when they had the products to present, they didn't present them to me anymore. They presented to my competitors, and uh, my staff was whittled down. And, and it was really tough. I, I had to. Uh, I had to work really hard to get back on my feet, and it was after that period of time that uh, uh, it didn't take too long, and then Blue Blocker came around, and and of course that uh, lifted our company uh, dramatically, and and the rest is history. But that was my battle with the Federal Trade Commission, and uh, and I'll tell you, when you're a pioneer in a lot of different areas, uh, you get uh, the slings and arrows from the FTC as well. I know when. We did infomercials. They came after us because they said our infomercial looked too much like a, a regular TV show. Well, yeah, that's the idea of an infomercial is you want to follow a particular format. It's, it's a form of entertainment, and you want to follow that format, uh, a format that people are familiar with as far as entertain, uh, entertainment. So uh, so we changed it. Uh, we announced in the beginning it was a commercial at the end, and, in fact, we called our a program the making of a commercial so there wouldn't be any confusion whatsoever so anyway that's that's the story about the FTC uh, uh, they got a job to do but uh, at the time I was involved with them they were they were doing it uh, they weren't very nice 
And in in hindsight, then, um, if for someone if if someone gets taken on by the FTC today, you wouldn't be suggesting that they fight them the way you did. If you do, if you had that situation over, you would have just settled and moved on. Is that correct? Oh, I I never regret anything that I've done. Um, uh, I I really can't answer that. I I, I just uh, there are parts of the times when I said, boy, if, if if I had not fought them for those six years. That was during the period of the big uh, computers, and in fact, a little company around the corner of my uh, company, uh, a guy that was renting space, was a company called CDW Consumer or uh, hmm, Consumer Discount Warehouse. Computer Discount Warehouse, and it had a small little company, and he he was one of my admirers. You know, he'd come over, and and he was so proud of the fact that he had an office near me, and. Uh, uh, during those six years, that guy grew and grew and grew, and uh, we were just busy fighting the government. So very often I've said to myself, had I stuck to my business and settled with them, I could have been uh, a lot bigger, a lot uh, more successful. But I can't complain. I've had a wonderful life. I've had uh, uh, I've never been lacking of, of for any money other than that one period of time I was fighting the government. And... Uh, I felt I provided a really good service for other business people. I got letters from people that, that I inspired uh, that uh, went on to greater things because of the fight that I fought. So anyway, it's a, it's a mixed bag, but I, I I don't regret anything that's happened. Everything that's happened in my life has happened for the best, and that's the way I view things. And even at the time, I may not realize it. Uh, it's, I just believe that. So. All right. Any uh, closing advice you'd like to give to any of the entrepreneurs listening? Yeah, yeah, actually a uh, couple things. One is is uh, that you should all do what you really enjoy. If you're really enjoying what you're doing, you'll be successful. And the second thing is never give up. Never give up because we're, you know, it's like we're all given a bucket of oysters. You've ever opened an oyster? You 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 can cut your fingers. They're really difficult to open. And but in in that bucket, there's a pearl in one of those oysters. And you just got to keep opening them. And you might have deal with failure after failure after failure. And it might be the last oyster in that bucket, but it's always there. And so it's a matter of persistence. And if you just don't give up, you'll get there. And it, uh, look at I'm I could. I haven't told you all the failures I've been through. I have been so through so many failures and be amazed. Sounds like you've just had success after success listening to this call. <laughs> well, it, it's true, but it, it's funny because when I give a, a speech or a, a talk to a group of people and I'm introduced and, and uh, they have some idea of who I am, uh, I get up there and I talk about my failures, and they're funny, and they're, 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 there's a lot of lessons to be learned through those failures. So I'm, I'm not I'm much bigger failure than I am a success, let me put it that way. But you had a couple of decent successes along the way. Yep. <laughs> Fair enough. So um, for anyone that's interested in contacting you, what what are you interested in hearing from people from, and how can you help people, and how can people help you? Well, um, I'm always, you know, happy to give a little advice. I, I, I do not consult. Uh, I do help people. Um, when I say I do not consult, I, do, I don't do anything for money because... I just I just don't. It, uh, but if uh, people want, if they have a specific question or, or something, I'm, I'm more than happy to answer. Is there any any way any of these guys can help you? Interested in any kind of internet stuff? Um, not right now. Eventually, but I, there is one area that uh, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about what I've talked about, 
there's a book uh, that I've written for Adweek. It's called the Adweek Copywriting Handbook, and it's available on Amazon.com under my name. And it's um, it's uh, I think it's like fifteen dollars. It's very inexpensive. And uh, I've also written I've also written books. Uh, one book called Triggers. Uh, it's no longer in print. I've got to I've got to actually revise it and get it back into print. But it's Triggers is also in this Adweek Copywriting Handbook. In other words, I, I go into the various triggers that uh, prompt a sale. So this is really a, a good value to get right now, and uh, uh, Amazon.com is where to get it. If you're interested in going deeper into my my, my books or my courses, or, or C, I have a CD course, I'll be happy to uh, give you the information about it. And actually, I could add on that um, the books, your books are, uh, I've, you've got the book on mail order and on TV advertising and on uh, advertising copywriting. That that set of three are outstanding. I'd Joseph books are some of the best books I've read. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's right. If you're interested in TV, I talk about spot commercials, infomercials, uh, all those things you really need. In fact, how to get into QVC, it's really a valuable book, and that's also available on Amazon.com. As well, cool. as well, I think it's Barnes & Noble also, I believe, carries this as well. But anyway, you just check them out, and, and I'm sure you'll you'll find them. Okay. So that's it for the interview. Thank you very much.